You are listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. Well, the Oscars are officially over, and thank God for that. The end of a very long season once again. And uh, it's time to push on into the movies of 2019. We're beginning today with director Dean Deblois, who is the director of uh, one of my favorite animated franchises. I'd say it's the best animated franchise this side of Toy Story, and that's the How to Train Your Dragon series. His new film is How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. And I've known Dean for a number of years. Uh, I think we met right around the time of the the first sequel, How to Train Your Dragon 2, back in 2013, I think that was. And uh, he's great, and I, I think he's had such a great eye for this series, bringing in people like Roger Deakins to help with the aesthetic and things like this. It's just been really a, a beautiful culmination with this new film, and uh, I was really eager to sit down and talk to Dean about it. So here is my conversation with Dean Deblois about How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Let's get some level okay, great. Uh, I am Dean Deblois, writer-director, How to Train Your Dragon 3, you are The Hidden World. How to Train Your Dragon 3. Oh, yeah. Stuck the number in there. Are they calling it that anymore? It's strange because as you go country to country, some places have How to Train Your Dragon 3. They have to kind of throw the number on there. And, uh, yeah. And then we, for whatever reason, we didn't do it here. I think Universal believes that the numbers somehow make the movie less special. Ah. Well, uh, as you just heard, we're here with Dean Debla, the director (laughs) of How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. It's the third film in the How to Train Your Dragon series, which I have loved from the beginning, and we're so pleased that you're able to come on the show. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. I'm super happy to be here. Yeah, I mean... I love listening to your podcasts. Oh, are you a listener? Good. Yes, it's I always am. fun to have people on that didn't know the drill. Uh, any favorite episodes? I like them all. I yeah. like your insights. Thank you. Because know, you. you have a... I've known you for, what, close to 10 years now. <laughs> yeah, it's been and, a while. Uh, and I do think that, um, yeah, your, your questions are very interesting. Well, I'll try to keep that streak going here today. Uh, you had a trilogy in mind when you set out to make these movies, right? Uh, no, not, no, not at the beginning. Okay. The, the first movie was just we, Chris Sanders and I, were drafted mm-hmm. onto the first film with 15 months before its release in theaters, and they needed they needed a new story using like elements that had been already designed and and created in the sort of 3D virtual space. But we we had to give it a new story, mm-hmm. keep the spirit of the books, but just to sort of expand upon all the fantasy adventure tropes. So th- I, we were tasked with just delivering a movie that would that would work, and we weren't thinking in terms of the future. It wasn't until it went out into the movie theater, uh, sorry, into, yeah, into the cinemas, and and it was in terms of box office and, and critically well-received. That's when ah. the discussion of a sequel began. And I pitched back the idea of doing three acts of one story, mm-hmm. that that, uh, that would give us a purpose for each of the sequels, and... Um, in a way, try to map Hiccup's coming of age from Viking runt nuisance to mm-hmm. wise, selfless Viking chief by the end of yeah. it all. What, uh, you said the spirit of the books. What was important? What's in the spirit of the books that you wanted to make sure was translated? I think the underdog, the the idea that Hiccup in the books as well is he's the son of Stoic the chief. He doesn't fit the mold of the standard Viking. And it's his sort of tenacious spirit that wins the day. Mm-hmm. Toothless in the books is a small talking dragon about the size of a dog, so that's quite different. Yeah. And the content of that first story, How to Train Your Dragon, was more about 
young Vikings raising dragons from from the eggs that they've picked and teaching them to do tricks. And the tradition is to sort of berate and yell at your dragon until it submits and Hiccup chooses to be kind to his and it does you know, more impressive tricks than all the rest. And yeah. it isn't until the very end that a, a menacing dragon ends up on their shores and it's up to Hiccup and Toothless to take it on and yeah. protect the village. Uh, you mentioned this, but just ch- charting the hero's journey uh, across this span of time. I mean, that's what's interesting about the trilogy is, you know, you might expect movies like this, the sequel is just like the next day or like it's, it's it, the guy stays or the character would stay the same age as you go. But this movie, you kind of chart his growth. And by the end of this movie, uh, it's like it's it's a big emotional wallet because you've seen Hiccup grow, you've seen you've seen him become a, you know a man and a family man. And uh, was that very important to you from the beginning, or is that something that evolved into being? Because again, it's it's somewhat unusual for something like this. It evolved into being out of necessity because we looked at continuing Hiccup's story, and if you uh, if you take a look at the first film, by the end of it, he's achieved everything he wanted. Uh, he is. He has his father's love. He has the town's respect. He has the mutual admiration of Astra, the girl that he was pining for. He has an amazing, cool dragon, and he's ended an age-old war between Vikings and dragons. This, this is a character without a problem. And the idea of starting a next film and having it feel that it has some sort of uh, worth and purpose and a universal theme at its core meant that we had to visit Hiccup at a different point in his life where he was encountering a crossroads that would you know, speak to a, a worldwide audience. And by advancing the clock five years, that put us at a, a very natural transition between youth and adulthood and the carefree abandon, stepping into uh, a life of, of consequence mm-hmm. and um, pressures and responsibilities. And so the idea that Hiccup was trying to define himself as as a young man against the backdrop of these two very overbearing uh, parents, mm-hmm. you know, with, with strongly opinionated, it 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 kind of set up a storyline that wasn't dependent upon the factors of the first movie. Yeah, and uh, I, I love the first movie, but the second movie really does feel like just this big leap ahead, uh, you know, in in everything and in, in storytelling and uh, aesthetic. You know, is that because after the first movie, you guys decided, okay, this is going to be a trilogy now, and we're going to deepen it, and that just all of that kind of became apparent in the second movie. Is that just what happened there? Yeah, I think so. And also, I was now writing and directing alone. Uh, Chris Sanders had gone back to work on The Croods, which was what he was originally tasked with before jumping on to, to the first film. Mm-hmm. So uh, it left me left me alone to lean into my personal sensibilities and growing up a Star Wars kid and being such a, a fan of The Empire Strikes Back coming off of the heels of, of A New Hope, I knew that we had the opportunity to broaden the world and amplify the adventure and deepen some of our understanding of the characters. Mm-hmm. So we weren't going to abandon comedy and we weren't going to abandon the sense of wonder or, or I guess, uh, emotion that was in the first movie. But there was an opportunity to, to I think, blow it open and with Vikings now on the backs of dragons at the beginning of the second film we could suggest in those five years that Hiccup and Toothless had been intrepid explorers expanding their world in every direction adding to the map Mm -hmm. coming across not only new dragons but maybe new new human populations Mm -hmm. as well different tribes and perhaps some of those might not be so friendly yeah 
All of that makes it really fun to watch these back to back. By the way, because I watched <laughs> the other two again the night before I saw the new one. And, Thank uh, you. It's really cool because you know each movie starts and you're just like you know immediately that like there there's a new there's new rules there's there's a new story that's about to unfold. It just feels tangible, you know. Great. Uh, you know Roger Deakins. I want to talk about yes. him. Uh, <laughs> Roger was brought in on these. Was, he was on the first one, right, from the beginning? Or was it just the second one? Uh, no, he was on the first one as well. Okay. Yeah, so he came in and started working with DreamWorks Animation. And I, I'm just curious how you guys use him. Like, what, what kind of insights does he provide? What uh, What is he doing for you on these movies? And well, for anyone who doesn't know who Roger Deakins is, hopefully listeners of the show know. <laughs> but if you don't, probably the greatest working cinematographer. Finally won an Oscar last year for Blade Runner 2049. So tell me about him. Well, it started with that admiration. Chris Sanders and I joined uh, DreamWorks and How to Train Your Dragon with a hand-drawn animation background. And in the hand-drawn process, before you produce uh, the actual shots that make up the scenes, there's a, a stage called Workbook, and it combines the background with the character and a rendering that kind of tells you what the light and shadow is. So we're very comfortable with what the final composition will be before we actually animate and commit all of our resources. In CG animation, we, we, click, we quickly realized that the department that, that actually chooses camera angles and camera movement and composition and even lens choices is months away from the department that lights the shots. In other words, we're committing to compositions without knowing where the light and shadow was going to fall. Mm -hmm. And that seemed really strange to me because anything that I've ever read about cinematography is it, it's light and shadow that's the primary concern especially in composition mm -hmm. so we decided to bring in roger deakins knowing that he had he did a um, like two or three days of a workshop at pixar on wally -E, and you can see the effect of it in that first act of wally -E. yeah um we invited roger to be you know he was everyone's favorite cinematographer so uh we reached out to him first and we said would you come by let us pitch you the movie and see if if you might do something similar a couple workshops to kind of get people talking between mm -hmm. these two departments what actually happened was he, he went home and he talked to his wife james and he called back and said you know i really like the project i'd like to join it and be part of it for the entire production mm -hmm. which was amazing to us. We didn't know if we could afford it, and so we went <laughs> right to Jeffrey Katzenberg at the time. And uh, sure enough, uh, he joined the project, and, and we made it work, which meant that he was he was there from the start when we were just talking about, we, we put together these mood and atmosphere boards based on just a collection of photos that we thought, oh, this has a really nice sense of light or this great sense of atmosphere with the fog or whatever. And we put all of these images up that gave us ideas for what the eventual look of each sequence of the movie might might have in the end. He would work with our layout department. Um, he First of all, he would look at storyboards and, and consult on shots and say, maybe you could combine this or have you thought of it from this perspective? He would work with us through that layout department of um, camera angles and camera movement and um, and then all the way through, all the way through to the end where we were lighting our final shots. And he would sit down with those individual lighters and our visual effects supervisor and our production designer and, uh, yeah, consult on what might be a really iconic look for each and every sequence of the mm -hmm. film. Is there anything in any of the movies that you can point to and just say that is the hand of Roger Deakins? Like, is there like a sequence that comes to mind or an image from any of the movies that comes to mind? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, 
the first film, uh, one of the first sequences that we put through in lighting was Hiccup in his workshop when his father visits him late at night. Mm -hmm. And in animation, because everything has to be modeled and created, every set is populated with props that have been painstakingly built from drawings and and the the kind of knee-jerk instinct is to light everything, make it kind of colorful and candy-coated and bright. And he came into that sequence and he said, let's just put two candles in the room and let everything else fall off into black, which is just never done. And uh, we thought, this won't go over well. And (laughs) because as soon as we start showing executives and people might get a little nervous, so it's a little too moody, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this isn't... The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. <laughs> this is a this is a, a, a four quadrant animated movie, and and we we don't want to go niche with this. But it was so beautiful, and it was kind of pioneering in a way. It, it actually took the animation medium as we knew it and moved it a little closer to the line that separates animation and live action. Yeah, uh, it had this this sense of natural light. It was about removing lights and uh, creating a sense of just diffusion coming through a window or yeah. an open door or a uh, sense of atmosphere that a rainstorm may have just passed. And so uh, there, there are many examples, but that was one of the first ones that we were nervous about getting approval on. And it certainly helped to have Roger in the room when we presented it, but it was accepted <laughs> and it became kind of a, a benchmark for the look of the entire trilogy. That sounds like a great example too, because I mean, I've studied Roger's work at length. <clears throat> I wrote a whole series of interviews with him one year uh, where we were looking back at a lot of his movies and I literally watched like every one of his 50 or so credits. And he actually, it's, it's an interesting, uh, he seems to be really interested in fire and how it plays with darkness and how silhouettes come in. And it's just, there, there's definitive shots throughout his career that I've noticed uh, where he's really into this concept you're kind of talking about with this one sequence. So that's, that's pretty cool. You can also kind of feel the echoes of like a Gordon Willis in there because he's, certainly influenced by Gordon Willis, as many DPs are. So, uh, you know, that's awesome. Uh, what kind of just references have you had from the beginning of the look of these movies, uh, how, the, how the characters would look, uh, or have there been any? I mean, you know, for instance, I've, I've always thought it's interesting that in Toothless you can see a little bit of Stitch. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've noticed that before. I mean, Dean directed Lilo and Stitch as well. I love that movie. Um, Thank you. So just curious, like, uh, to, to achieve the look beyond the deacons of it all and beyond the composition and lighting, just what things would look like? What were your inspirations there? We uh, we took a look at a lot of the designs that had been done already when we inherited the project. And luckily, they had a they have a wonderful designer named Nico Marley, who's still at the studio, and he's worked on all three films. He had generated just a plethora of designs of dragons and all very charming and interesting, but they were all very reptilian. And we thought if we were going to reinvent Toothless for our story and make him something of a ghost in the Viking world, no one's ever seen one. It's ferocious. It it, it can cloak itself against the the night sky and blot out stars as it flies by. Uh, He's a badass. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> we, we thought uh, it, it should be a dragon that really stands out from the rest. So we decided, we saw a photograph, actually, of a Black Panther on one of our story artists' screens, and it was just draped across a tree limb, and it, it was so beautiful but but dangerous at the same time. And we leaned into that idea, a Black Panther mixed with a salamander with the qualities of a bat. Yeah. And that became the defining 
you know, the defining mix that makes up Toothless. But we approached every every dragon and the environments and even the characters with a sense of caricature because it is animation and we weren't trying to make something that was photoreal, but at the same time rendered with such credibility that it supported this overall thematic idea. We wanted the stakes of this world to feel real. Mm-hmm. We wanted the peril to feel tangible and the flight to feel visceral. But it was yeah, it was essential that it that the material that we populated the world with, whether it was hair and fur and moss and rock, it, it had to feel like you could reach out and touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that supported the idea that if you got in the way of dragon fire, you would get burned. If you fell from a height, you would not bounce like uh, you know a, a Looney Tunes cartoon. It was this is this this was sort of real world stakes, and that supported this idea that dragons were essentially like dinosaurs. They roamed this earth at one point, the mm-hmm. earth we know, and this is a period of history where built in mythology, yeah, yeah, where they were here, now they're gone, and why? That's awesome. Yeah, so I think uh, to answer your question in a shorter way I, th- I think the we leaned into a lot of what roger offered um, in terms of natural light and and the design aesthetic of the movie that sort of came together to to provide us with something that felt um tangible credible there's something almost steampunk about some of it you know just just in you know the tinkering the st- you know the his leg and, and, and things like that i mean it, it lends to that tangible aspect i think thank you um, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, early days, you sort of you worked for Don Bluth, yes, and and, and I, you know, I guess it's fair to say you, you studied under him in some yeah. sense. Uh, you know, this is the director of Secret of Nim and American Tale and All Dogs Go to Heaven. Uh, way back to Pete's Dragon, working on the animation for that. I'm just curious mm-hmm. what uh, what you learned working with Don Bluth. With Don, um, I've never seen anyone draw like Don. He is, he's an amazing draftsman. He could put a, a fresh sheet of paper down on his desk, and I've watched him do it. And it's as though he has a finished drawing already in his mind, and he projects it onto the paper. Because as his hand moves across, there's no searching for shapes or forms. Wow. It's, he's like a spirograph. He just He's able to draw exactly what he sees, and it's, it's with just incredible draftsmanship. I think what Don lacked was the self-awareness of that he was not a master in every field. And so his uh, his need to control the storytelling was actually a bit of the downfall of the studio. Mm-hmm. I think there was such talent at that studio and so many people really, as, as is at every studio, everyone wants Ireland. to work on something. Yeah. Yes, they want to work on something they're super proud of. Mm-hmm. And one of the takeaway lessons I had working at that studio for four years was yeah, you could give up your weekends and your nights and work with super talented people. But unless, unless those few folks at the very top are calling the right shots in terms of storytelling at the end of the day, it's not something you're going to be proud of. It's not something you want to tell people that you worked on. Right. And that was my experience. I worked on, you know, three of their worst movies. And and so it made me determined um, to, not only get closer to to those departments that called the shots in terms of story, but also I made a pact with myself that if I ever get a chance to direct a movie, I want to make sure that first and foremost, it's something the crew would be proud yeah. to bring their, their loved ones and their families to. Interesting. Um, and then something that I thought was interesting, you know, you were, you were head of story on Mulan at Disney, right? Uh, they're making that into a live action feature as they've been doing all of their stuff. 
what do you think about that kind of trend as of late? I mean, on one hand, it makes total sense, right? Like, go to your own well, your IP, and make money off of it again. But, uh, you know, as someone entrenched in animation, I'm just curious what you think of that. I, you know, I get the idea of wanting to freshen something up for a new generation. And there's certainly artistic merit in some of the uh, the reworkings. But I do... I do think that it seems to suggest animation is a lesser art form. And for me, there are so many stories to be told, so many great ideas to be mined. It's a little it's a little disappointing when we just keep remaking the same things over and over again. Yeah. I, I would love to work on original projects and uh and give the audiences something new. And so I think in a way it's it, you know, having worked on Mulan and having worked on Lilo and Stitch, it's, it's in a way it's a compliment that they want to go back and mm. make the movie for another generation. But it also there's an element of laziness to it. I have to say <laughs> because the work's already been done. You know, all of those yeah. those years of kind of banging your head against a rock trying to get a story to work. It's, Do any it, of those people see money from this, <laughs> these new projects? That's what I'm curious about. Like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I talked to some of the people behind Beauty and the Beast, and I, I don't, they weren't even involved. Yeah. So, um, But again, that's not really the point. It's just there, there's a lot of work um, and um, struggle that goes into getting a story to work. And it's easy to pick the ones that did super well and won awards and just yeah. say, let's do that again. Yeah. <laughs> so when's the uh, live-action How to Train Your Dragon coming? Oh, God. <laughs> Have they talked about that? Do they do they even bring that up over there? Like things like that. Um, you know, the the way the way I've been answering this because people keep asking, is this the end for How to Train Your Dragon? It is for me. Yeah. And I don't own the franchise. Uh, they may well decide that they want to go back to it. But what I tried to do is provide a beginning, middle, and end of a story between this young Viking named Hiccup and his dragon Toothless, and and his era and. Mm-hmm. If uh, if the idea of dragons on this planet it continues to be something they want to go back to, then I would hope they would find a new, you know, a new a new timeline, new characters, new story. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to do next? Are you going to stay in the world of animation? Or are you going to? You just talked about Star Wars, so I kind of want to ask <laughs> you if you if you've been pitching stuff over at Disney. I but so you know. I, I haven't actually pitched anything, but I am um, I am very interested in doing a live action film or a hybrid film. I, I, Sold three projects to write and direct in the years between Lilo and Stitch and How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, so it continues to be something I'm very interested in. I do love, I love the idea of being prolific and being able to explore more mature themes in live action, having mm-hmm. uh, multiple projects going. But I, but listen, I love animation as well. It just takes a lot longer, and after a while. You know, the automatic uh, kind of assignment to the kids, you know, no matter what you finish, no matter how many, um, how much effort you put into trying to make the material accessible and rewarding for for a more mature audience, it is almost always uh, kind of sent to the kiddie table. <laughs> and and that gets a little, it gets a little frustrating as well. So I love animation. I think I've certainly made some amazing friends in this business and worked with some of the most incredible artists. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I have this, yeah, I have this itch to kind of expand as well. And that could just be in a story sense. Maybe the next thing I do is animation, but I would love the idea of uh, not letting the medium dictate what I yeah. do next. And to your point about it taking a long time, I mean, it's probably pretty difficult to be prolific in animation because of, <laughs> you guys are working on these things for like four years, five right. years. It's it's got to be intense. Are you sad to leave the the world of Dragon behind? Are you uh, are you kind of eager to leave the world behind? Um, it's it's bittersweet in the sense that yeah, we've come to know these characters as though they're real, and the the, the team that was brought together have like it has become like family. The the actors, the the artists, the technicians, everybody has. Um, contributed to these three films and largely worked on mm-hmm. uh, since 2010 since or 2008 that's when I started it's largely been the same team some people left some people replaced them and, and came into the mix but we're a, a pretty tight family so I think we look back at at the three films as just a golden opportunity and and something to be proud of it's not every day you get to work on a trilogy and yeah. That was really wonderful. It's, it feels like a feather in our caps, and and yet at the same time, we know that we might not be assembled as the same team to work on something again. Yeah. And and people do sort of leave the fold to to pursue other opportunities and challenges, and and I'm just glad that we did it with the the original integrity intact. You know, yeah. let's let's tell a three act story, and at the end of it, we will we'll bring it to a finite end. And be proud of that, mm-hmm. and not let it just carry on, you know, with yeah. endless sequels until people lose interest. Yeah, I think you've done that. I think it's th- these are the three best films that they've made over there. Well, thank you. So, uh, congratulations, man. Uh, Thanks very much. It's, it's on behalf of fantastic. what three hundred and fifty people that worked <laughs> yeah, on it. Yeah. We're all very happy. You think so? I'm going to close out with our new segment lately. Uh, what is the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Put you on the spot. Star Wars. Star Wars. The, A New Hope. Tell me why. It pr- I think I was obvious, I was but... primed. So I'm uh, I was born in 1970, and I think I saw that film in maybe 77 or 78. Um, I was just in the middle of my fascination with comic books and telling my own stories and acting out epics in my backyard with action figures, and it just kind of lit my imagination on fire. And I loved that it was a world that was ever expanding. Mm-hmm. That's why I love The Empire Strikes Back so much. It took everything I loved about Star Wars and expanded it and became more mature as I was growing up with it as well. But it it definitely, yeah, I think for me, it's funny. I've never wanted to work in sci-fi, but it has, um, it is the movie that that I think because it has such classical themes and and such a solid um, classic story to it. And the Uh, world building is probably really attractive. Uh, you like the new stuff? Um, I, I I do like some of it. I really mm-hmm. liked Rogue One, actually. I did, too. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great... I mean, just watching that in Star Wars sometimes, and I'm good with that. You yeah. Know, I don't have it's to almost too much. Like, I feel like I'm. It, it's arriving too steadily, mm-hmm. and it's a bit too ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it looks like that's over for now. walk into stores and... <laughs> and yeah, it, it used to be something that was really cool. <laughs> like if you found a great Star Wars T-shirt, I was I'd be envious. Um, now it feels as though it's everywhere. Yeah, and you know this the danger with these these wonderful franchises that we grow up with that we have such a strong attachment to that they can be um, you know, they can be milked uh, mm-hmm. in a way that kind of 
and for me anyway. Yeah, sends me sends me in the opposite direction. Get the Star Wars shirt at Target now. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. it's kind of yeah the ubiquitous the ubiquitous nature of these IPs and these brands. It, it becomes. Uh, I but know. I think I think J.J. Abrams has done some really wonderful stuff too. With the I've heard some cool things about this next one. Yeah, it's um, the imagery. You know, so some really powerful imagery. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, there's nothing quite like, and it, you know, it's nostalgia, of course. Um, I was at a point in my life where these movies meant so much to me, and I, I grew up poor as well. So when I went to a, a movie, I had to commit it to memory because that was the one time I was going to see it. Yeah. Obviously, when VHS came <laughs> came around, Game I was changer. able to uh, revisit films. But at the time, it was just the movie poster meant so much, and and the, the film itself, I would try to absorb as much as possible. Yeah. So, Clash of the Titans, and um, you know, the the Star Wars films, like these these are films that for me defined my interests. I just never thought I'd have the opportunity to to contribute to it. And here you are. <laughs> uh, everyone, go see this movie. Uh, again, I love all three of these movies, and it's a great just bow to tie on the trilogy, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. It's in theaters now. It's been all over the world since you know the last couple of weeks, and I think it's doing bang-up box office naturally. So go see it. I loved it. And Dean Debel, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, a pleasure and an honor. Awesome. Always great to see you.